Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Good morning, Connect. Thank you for, this, for, the, for the welcome. Um, I love visiting the South. This is great. <laughs> I live like five minutes from the Wisconsin border, so anything south of Schaumburg is the south of, to me. So, but seriously, thank you. you. You all have been very welcoming, and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here this morning. Um, and uh, I, I always do this when I get the chance to speak at somebody else's church. I, I just want to thank Pastor Dave publicly for um, allowing me to come and share the word with you this morning. Uh, I don't take that lightly because it's a, it's a privilege and a responsibility. Um, and I don't know that I would trust Pastor Dave to treat my patients one morning. So I really appreciate the opportunity this morning. Um, if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to start the message off with a question, and I'd like for you to, to write this question down because it's going to provide us uh, with some context and direction this morning. So here's, here's a question. Who or what do you turn to when your future is uncertain? When life as you planned it takes an unforeseeable turn in a direction that you didn't prepare for, who or what do you grasp onto in order to maintain security in your life? Now, I've shared this message um, several times over the past six months, um, but I first shared it uh, during a series, uh, my home church, Northwest Family Church, where I met Dave and Casey uh, in Lake Zurich, Illinois. I first shared it there um, earlier this year, and it was during uh, a series called Shift, and Shift was looking at uh, the baggage that we carry in our Christian walks and how it affects us and influences us. And I, I met with my pastor, Pastor Skylar Goodman, and I said, you know, I really have a burden to share on this subject, mostly because I have a ton of baggage. Uh, but the Lord has really taught me a lot over the last 12 years since becoming a Christian. And of course, uh, Pastor Schuyler said, yes, I want you to share this, please do. Um, and as soon as I sat down to begin crafting the message a few weeks before, uh, I immediately regretted the decision. Because preparing, um, preparing a sermon, preparing a message is, is, a, is a tall order. It's a difficult thing to do. And for me, it was difficult because there was so much that the Lord has taught me through my baggage that it was hard for me to really hone down exactly what it is that I wanted to share. But the Lord was faithful. He, he, he revealed a, a verse to me that helped me really distill down what, what I wanted to speak about. And if you've got a Bible this morning, please turn to Acts chapter 1. If you don't, it will be up on the screen. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what really stuck out to me in this verse was the part that says you will be my witnesses. Because it's our stories as Christians that can be some of the most powerful ways to show people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I realized, you know, I, I just need to share my story. And that's what I plan to do with you over the next 30 minutes today, is to share my story. 
And, and to be completely uh, transparent, it's, a, <clears throat> it's an emotional story for me. It's emotional because, like Dave said, it, it started 12 years ago when I darkened the doors of his church. And um, I was an 18-year-old boy at the time. <clears throat> no direction. I thought I knew everything. I thought I had direction, but really lost with, with no direction. And as I look back on it now, I'm, I'm 31 years old. Two sons, a beautiful wife, and I'm blessed beyond my years. So it, it's a very emotional story for me. And, and, and maybe, like some of you here today, I was dragged to church 12 years ago by somebody. I know there's got to be a few people in the audience today who have been dragged here today. Um, and to be completely honest with you, again, the ch- I thought the church was very weird. Um, to give you sort of a, a context of where I came from, I, I come from a Chicago, Polish, Roman Catholic family. My dad's a retired Teamster truck driver. Uh, we grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition. So for me to come into an environment where people were raising their hands, where there was what essentially is a rock band playing Christian music, that was very strange to me. It was uncomfortable for me. Um, But as I kept going, uh, the discomfort faded, and I really saw in the people at church um, this genuineness. Uh, they They were interested in me. They had a love for me, and it was rooted in servanthood, something that I had never experienced before um, in a relationship. And I needed that at that time of my life. And there was no doubt that I needed to continue chasing after God, and I needed to continue going to church, and that's what I did. And sometime in the spring of 2002, I I accepted Christ as my Savior, and I started to, to live for Him. And you know what? When I became a Christian, I had no, no problem accepting that Christ died and forgave my past, future, and present sins. I had no problem with that. And, you know, at the time, I, I really needed that because I was carrying a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. So I had, I had no problem understanding that and accepting that was liberating for me. Where my problem was is that I didn't understand that my future security was also included in Christ's sacrifice. And so what I began to do is I started putting my life in my own hands. And I started to plan everything out. And at the time I was going to DePaul University in Chicago, Uh, And I I, I really had it all planned out to a T. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. What I needed to do was graduate from college with a really high GPA. I had to apply to graduate school, get into graduate school, get into a competitive doctoral program, do well in the doctoral program, get a good residency, get a good paying job, make lots of money, buy a house, have kids, pay for my retirement, their schooling, weddings, blah, 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 blah. And the list goes on, right? Talk about baggage. I mean, I, I had every bag, every suitcase, fanny pack, satchel, tote, whatever you want to call it. I had them all packed to the brim. I had it planned out to the T. But the problem was is that I was doing it all on my own. And what began to happen is 
at every step of my plan, I began to experience intense anxiety and worry. I began to think about the what-ifs, the worst-case scenarios before every step. What if I don't get into graduate school? What if I don't get the practicum placement? What if I don't pass my doctoral exams? What if my dissertation bombs? What if I don't get a job? What if I can't afford a house? What if I fail? And failing was the biggest thing for me. What eventually happened is over the next several months and several years, I, I developed a pretty severe and debilitating anxiety disorder. I began having panic attacks on a daily basis. And as a psychologist, the, the term panic attack often gets overused in our, our society. Like, oh my gosh, I just had a panic attack. It's like, no, you, you don't do this if you have a panic attack. But <laughs> it was really intense anxiety. If you don't know what a panic attack is, it's a sudden surge of panic and anxiety. Your body goes from zero to 100. Your heart is beating very quickly. You're hyperventilating. Hot flashes, cold flashes, sweats, your stomach hurts. You feel nauseous, lightheaded, faint, tingling sensations in your hands and in your feet. Actually, most people, when they have a panic attack for the first time, end up in the ER. But 75% of people who go to the ER for chest pains are having panic attacks. That's how serious it is. Essentially, it feels as if your body's totally out of control. And the panic attacks would even start waking me up in the middle of the night. I would have these nocturnal panic attacks that would just wake me up. And if I could go back to sleep, it would only be for about 15 or 20 minutes at a time. My sleep worsened. I began having anxiety about having another panic attack. So I would have these anticipatory panic attacks. I'd get up in the morning completely exhausted. I, I, I couldn't sleep. I felt like something dreadful was going to happen at any moment. And going to work just seemed impossible at that time. I re- remember daily sitting on my couch with my face in my hands, very tearful, thinking that I, I, I just couldn't go on. I can't go to work. I'd eventually force myself to go to work with no sleep. And by this time, my appetite started to diminish. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but the thought of food and eating actually made me sick. And over two or three weeks, I lost about 20 to 30 pounds because I wasn't eating at all. With the cycle of, of not sleeping, not eating, going to work, not sleeping, not eating, going to work... I developed clinical depression. Again, this is a term that we often overuse in our society, but this wasn't just sadness. This was a deep sense that my future was hopeless and there was nothing that I could do about it. I I wasn't suicidal at the time, But I distinctly remember staying home from work one day and lying in my bed in the dark. My wife wasn't home, and I, I prayed that the Lord would take me home. The future that I had planned out was crumbling before me. And there was nothing that I could do to change that. 
which gave me more anxiety. Now, I could go on for, for hours about the months and the years that lay ahead of me with my anxiety and how I coped with that, but this is not therapy, although it does feel like it, kind of. I'm getting this out. Um, but suffice it to say that through my, my faith in Christ Jesus and, and a godly wife that constantly pointed me back to Scripture and prayer, and the realization that my attempt to control my anxiety was, or control my life through worry and anxiety was a sin, I was able to overcome anxiety. And what I want to do this morning is share some truths and some insights that I learned through that experience for you this morning. But before we jump into those insights, what I want to do is clarify exactly what anxiety and worry are. Whenever I teach on this subject or or lecture on it, I always say that it's important for us to understand the nature of the beast before we can slay the beast, right? we got to understand what exactly this is. And I came uh, this morning with some stats on anxiety. And these stats come from the Anxiety Disorders Association of America, uh, the ADAA. And this this is an organization... Uh, that supports, researches, and treats people with anxiety and anxiety disorder. And these stats are from 2013. So this is kind of a 30,000-foot view of anxiety, okay? What we know is that anxiety is the most common mental health problem in the United States. In fact, 40 million adults will be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in a given year. This is 18% of our population, 18%. Now, what's interesting about this statistic is that these are adults. This doesn't include children or adolescents or people who have anxiety that don't necessarily meet the criteria for a disorder. So you can imagine what that percentage is. It's likely 25% of our population. The sex distribution, women are affected at a higher rate than men. The prevalence is higher for them, but this is most likely because women are, uh, are more likely to admit if they have a psychological issue than men are. That's actually true. Uh, fortunately, anxiety is highly treatable. Unfortunately, about a third, only about a third of the people with anxiety disorders actually go get treated seek out some sort of treatment. So there are people, 66% of people who have anxiety disorders, that aren't getting treatment. And finally, anxiety disorders cost the U.S. $42 billion a year in mental health care costs. This is a third of our total mental health bill in the United States. So the reason I tell you this is to see the scope of the problem but also to understand how common this is in our society. It's very, very common. The definition of anxiety and worry is also important because anxiety and worry are actually two very different things. Most people kind of use these terms uh, synonymously or interchangeably, but they're actually very important to differentiate, particularly as Christians. Worry is a thought It's a belief, it's a perception about some future threat. It's anticipatory. 
Worry usually takes the form of what-if questions. What if this happens? What if that happens? And worry is voluntary. It's something that you and I choose to do. We choose to engage in this. Worry is not something that happens to us. It's something that we seek out, actually. Now, anxiety is different. Anxiety is sort of our body's response to the worry. This is totally involuntary. And anxiety, actually, is our sympathetic nervous system. It's our flight or fight response, if you've ever heard of that. It kind of gets the body prepared for, for something dangerous. That feeling when you're driving in your car and the cop lights go off in your rearview mirror, that's anxiety, right? Pastor Dave knows that very well, okay? <laughs> Racing around in his little Audi. Theoretically, though, actually, it's probably more like Casey in the van, right? Getting... <laughs> Theoretically, though, worry is meant to keep us safe, right? Worry, it's our attempt at trying to predict some possible future threat. But the problem is that you and I, we stink at predicting future threats. We're really bad at it, okay? And actually, worry brings us to some pretty dangerous places. And through my experience, I've learned three major pitfalls of worry and anxiety that I want to share with you this morning. The first pitfall of worry is this, and if you're taking notes, write this down. Worry persuades us that our solutions are greater than God's promises. That our solutions are greater than God's promises. When we worry, we consciously make a decision to lean on our own understanding instead of the truth of God that's revealed in Scripture. In in Proverbs chapter 3, 5 through 8, it, it exemplifies this. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And always acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Just as the verse says, we think we're wise. We really do at times. We think we know what solutions are best for our lives. But our understanding is completely limited and can lead us to some dangerous places. And to sort of make an analogy of this, I want to ask you this question. Let's all pretend that we're going to take a trip to Key West, Florida, okay? Key West. It's approximately 1,500 miles away, so a very long trip, okay? If you were going to find accurate driving directions there, uh, would you look at, like, a road map or a road atlas, a GPS or Google Maps, something like that, that shows a really detailed description, you know, interchanges, highways, roads, tolls, all that kind of stuff? Or would you choose to go down to Jiffy Lube, uh, where that guy Jeff works at Jiffy Lube? Because Jeff, he went to spring break in 1995 in his mom's minivan, and he kind of knows how to get there, so I'm going to ask him how to get there, right? Would you choose to do that? No, you're not going to ask Jeff from Jiffy Lube how to get to Key West, Florida, right? Because you're going to end up in Gary, Indiana, okay? And you don't want to end up in Gary, Indiana, believe me. If If you're not getting the point here, though, we are all Jeffs from Jiffy Lube, okay? 
And I apologize if there's an actual Jeff from Jiffy Lube, but (laughs) worry causes us to take our eyes off of the promises of God in Scripture and onto our imperfect understanding and planning. Worry persuades us that our solutions are greater than God's promises. The second pitfall of worry. Worry convinces us that catastrophe is certain. Worry convinces us that catastrophe is certain. Our worrisome thoughts cause you and I to feel an emotion. It causes us to feel like impending doom is absolutely certain. When in, the, in reality, that worst-case scenario is unlikely to come to fruition. Ask yourself, when was the last time that what you labored over, what you lost sleep over, and worried about actually came to fruition? I hope that percentage is, is low. You see, the world around us gives us a, a, a different sort of message about feelings. Our society tells us that our feelings should dictate our realities, that we should follow our hearts, we should trust in our emotions, we should do what feels good, you, 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 right? But if you were to rely on your emotions for everything, we would end up into some pretty bad places, right? How many times have you felt in the morning like not going to work or going to school, I'm guessing five times this last week, probably, right? So there are some dangerous consequences to trusting that feeling, getting fired, getting suspended, something of that nature. The problem is that our emotions are most often the antithesis of the gospel. And the reason for that is because you and I were sinful beings at the core because of original sin, and we want what we want, and we think it's good for us. And the Bible has something to say about this in Jeremiah. And I absolutely love this verse as a psychologist. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says that our heart is sick and plagued. It's deceitful. It fools us. So why would we continue to trust something that's desperately sick and broken? The third pitfall of worry. Worry provides us with an illusion of control. Then I want you to circle and bold that word control. If I force myself to think about every possible scenario that could happen then I'll be prepared, and then I'll be in control. If I prepare for the worst, then I'll have hope that, you know, I I can survive. And if, if that thing actually doesn't come to fruition, then I'll just kind of be pleasantly surprised, right? I think we've all kind of engaged in that thinking before. But the problem is, is that the rumination that we engage in, that, that worry, this provides us with this false sense of control that's, that's really not there, right? And if worry actually worked, none of us would experience bad things in our lives. And so to give an example of this, I want to try an experiment, okay? And you have to participate in this or it will be lame, okay? 
and we don't want it to be lame. We've got a lot of people here, okay? We've got a lot of brain power, particularly over here. The craniums are a little bit bigger over here, I can see. What I want you guys to do is on the count of three, I want you to worry about this pen not hitting this floor, okay? I want you to worry as hard as you can. One, two, three, worry. Again, you guys are pretty good warriors over here. Right? That'd be weird if it floated. We would have problems. I'd have to restructure the whole message. But my thought here, although maybe it's a cheesy example here, my thought here is that worry doesn't actually prevent anything from happening. Okay? There's this old adage that says worry is like a rocking chair. Has anybody heard this before? Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it actually gets you nowhere. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm going to pick this up because last time I did this, somebody said that made them anxious, that being on the ground like that. So (laughs) Maybe you worry about your health. I'm one of these people. When did worrying about your health prevent you or prevent that headache or that stomach ache from being cancer? Maybe you worry about your job. Maybe you worry about your finances. When did worry ever keep you from losing your job, keep you from going bankrupt or losing your house? Maybe you worry about how other people view you and social interactions. When did worry ever keep others from liking you, not liking you, from you saying something embarrassing. Maybe you worry about your kids. I'm I'm another one of these persons. When did worry keep your kids from smoking pot? When did worry keep your kids from drinking alcohol? When did worry keep your kids from listening to Miley Cyrus? (laughs) Matthew chapter 6 Verses 25 through 27 says this, Therefore I tell you, and this is Jesus speaking, do not be anxious. He's giving us a direction here. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is is life not more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And listen to this last part. And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to your lifespan? The Word of God tells us that worry does nothing, that it's useless. It doesn't add anything to our lives. The three pitfalls of worry. Worry persuades us that our solutions are greater than God's promises Worry convinces us that catastrophe is certain and worry provides us with an illusion of control. The problem is that worry ultimately brings us farther and farther away from the security of God in his will. And instead of grasping onto that rock of salvation that, that stays constant in the midst of storms, we choose to grasp on to our own understanding through worry. And ultimately, when we choose to worry, we choose to take the trust away from God and we choose to trust in ourselves. And if you're going to hear one thing this morning, I want you to hear this. 
Where we place our trust is where we place our worship. So essentially, worry is self-worship. When we worry, we choose to take the crown off of God and we choose to put the crown on ourselves. So the question is, are, are, you, you know, are you ready to be the king of your life? Are you ready to make those decisions? Are you ready to trust yourself for your future? Make the millions of decisions that you need to make in order to be successful? And I hope that that answer is no this morning. So the solution to the problem is that we need to relinquish control back to God. We need to take the crown off of ourselves and put it back onto him, which is super easy, right? Super easy to let go of that worry when we've been doing it for so long. How do we do this? When worry is so pervasive, when we've been doing it for so long, how do we give it to God? And just as I gave you three problems of worry, I want to give you an antidote. And the, the, the way that we need to do this is to focus on the truths of God revealed in Scripture. So here are three truths of God for the worried heart. Three truths of God for the worried heart. Number one is God's plan. God's plan is how I should say it. <clears throat> You've probably seen this quote on Facebook or MySpace or whatever. People don't use MySpace anymore, do they? But the old adage is, if, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? People have all probably heard this. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Kind of cheesy, but it holds a kernel of truth that I really like. It implies that we selfishly think that our plans are greater than God's plans. We think the path we've mapped out is somehow greater, more thought out and foolproof than the plan for existence that God constructed at the beginning of eternity. The bottom line is that, that, that our plans are, are fickle. They're full of holes. And God's plan is much different. God's plan works for our good and his glory. God's plan works for our good and his glory. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... See, God is able to see the plan of eternity in, in its entirety. And if it were a painting, if it were a mural, God sees how all of this stuff fits together, how this corner here fits here and makes sense of this part over here. And he sees the whole thing and how it fits together. Not us. We have this very small Polaroid that we look at, this millimeter by millimeter, and we think that based on this, we can start making predictions and plan based on the information that we see. See, God's plan is greater than our plan because it works for our good and his glory. The second truth of God for the worried heart is God's presence. God's presence. Per paraphrasing Psalm 139.7, it says that we can't go anywhere and escape the presence of God. God is always with us. He's even here right now. And in God's presence, there's a comfort and there's a security when we enter his presence. But we must first acknowledge his presence before we can feel that. And when you and I worry, we get so involved in the emotion of that worry that we do not acknowledge the presence Fortunately, you and I have a Savior 
Jesus, who perfectly showed us how to do this in Scripture. And we get a great picture of this in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is hours before his death. And deeply troubled, Jesus, Jesus asked his father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. One of the greatest attributes of Christ is that he was both fully man and fully human. And what this means is, is he, he identifies with the struggles that you and I have and the emotions that we have. We've got a Savior that actually empathizes with our emotions and our struggles. Fortunately, Jesus responded in, in a perfect way and he didn't sin. And I, I believe in the moment when, when Jesus asked his father to take the cup from him, that he was experiencing impending doom. Just like you and I experience that impending doom when we worry. But thankfully, Jesus responded perfectly because his next words were, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus, although troubled, he understood the sovereignty of his father, And when tempted with worry, Jesus chose to enter the presence of God through prayer. And through prayer, he chose to focus on the truth of God. Jesus chose to submit rather than worry. He chose to surrender rather than control. Jesus understood that the presence of God offered security. The third and final truth of God for the worried heart is this, God's provision Remembering God's past faithfulness gives us ammunition against present doubt. Remembering God's past faithfulness gives us ammunition against present doubt. Think back on the many times that you've worried about a particular situation. Maybe you lost sleep over it. Maybe you you lost many tears over it. Maybe you lost a lot of joy in your life because you worried so much, But the, despite the time, the effort, the tears invested in, in worrying about that danger, you sit here in front of me still breathing this morning. And the reason you sit here this morning is because of the grace of God. God's word does not promise us monetary riches and wealth. God's word does not promise us complete physical safety. God's word does not promise us complete physical health either. But what God's word does promise is his grace. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9. And this is Paul speaking here. And Paul just got done pleading with the Lord to take a thorn away from him. And he said, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, there's no more safe a place than in the middle of God's grace. But this is not the safety, and you know this better than I do, this is not the safety that the world talks about, the kind of safety that says nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. The promise we find in God's grace is that despite the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can be certain that God is using it for our good and for his glory ultimately. For some of us, that actually may mean we need to shift our idea of what good is for us. Because pain and struggle can actually be good 
for us. And I want to I leave you with this. I, I've, been, I've been praying for you all week. <clears throat> and I can't imagine the pain that you've experienced as a community. And the Lord wants me to share with you that God does not allow us to experience pain for no reason. God always has a purpose for our pain. I distinctly remember being in the grips of that anxiety. Every day, my wife would tell me that the Lord had a plan for my pain. And to be honest with you, it irritated me every time she said that. Because in the moment, you do not see the purpose for that pain. And at, t- at times, I flat out questioned her. And at times, I was flat out mad with God. But I stand here this morning understanding that there was a purpose for that experience for me. God had a plan for my pain. And that, that plan was for me to share my experience with you this morning. I truly believe that God allowed me to experience the anxiety and worry so that I could share it with you and so that you could do the same later in your life. I know that there are many here riddled with anxiety. I know it. A community cannot go through something like you have and there not be people that have problems with anxiety and worry. God's ultimate provision and faithfulness is found in the sacrifices of his son Jesus and the grace we have in him this morning. As I close here and as Pastor Dave comes up to pray for us, um, I just want to challenge you this morning. I ask that you surrender your worries, you surrender your anxiety to God this morning. And maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here kicking the tires on this church. You don't, you don't really know what it's all about. I pray that you would talk to God about that this morning. And if you're ready, accept Jesus into your heart. Confess your sin. Confess that he is your Savior and that he died for you. If you are a Christian here this morning, I want you to do something very practical. I want you to name what it is that you're holding on to and that, that you're worrying about, that you won't let go. And I want you to release that to, to Lord as we, as we pray this morning. Maybe for some of you, though, the next step is to admit that you have a problem and that you need to take the next step to get help and to see a professional. And I pray that you would submit that to the Lord this morning. Thank you for having me.
Sure. A couple of bullet answers if you wouldn't mind, but um, someone would love to hear your talk about PTSD after the storm. Sure. Sure. I think it's important to understand uh, what PTSD actually is. Um, PTSD is, is called post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the longer name for it. And at the heart of it, it's a trauma and anxiety-based disorder. Uh, and it's important to understand the symptoms in order to identify it. Um, <clears throat> what PTSD actually is, uh, first and foremost, it's, it's the re-experiencing of some traumatic event. Uh, and it has to be a life-threatening event where the person's life was actually threatened or they saw somebody else's life actually threatened. And what happens is after the trauma, the individual begins to experience or re-experience that trauma in a variety of ways. Flashbacks where the person actually feels like the trauma is happening again. Uh, distressing dreams or nightmares or just memories and recollections throughout the day. Uh, additionally, things in the environment start to trigger the person, and the person begins to have anxiety, panic attacks. Uh, they become hypervigilant, which means there's a heightened startle response. The, the body's kind of always on edge. And finally, there's, there's a major change in emotion, too. The person begins maybe to feel depressed or angry, or even some people uh, report feeling numb to their emotions. I don't feel anything at all. So, number one, it's important to recognize that. Number two, you should get help from a professional if you have or you think you have PTSD because it will not get better on your own. This is a disorder that is chronic in nature if not treated, and it will get worse. Okay. I know... Yeah. You know, that there was just a little bit of tension in the room. And sure. People were going back to that, that moment. Yeah. And I know that in the morning, and, I, you know, people thanked me. I prayed, and people thanked me for praying. But the reality is I was praying for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was yeah. like, all those emotions from that morning sure. came back yeah. in that moment. And yeah. all people thanked me. And I, did, I felt God helped us that morning as we, as we experienced that. Yeah. That's a good example of a trigger that would, that would come about. And our brains are very complex things. Whenever we're presented in a life-threatening situation, your brain will hold on to that memory. The Lord has constructed our brain in a very great way. But the, the memory will hold, or the brain will hold on to that memory and search for things any similar to that memory to keep you safe. And so that thunder, what's the first thing when you think about? Storm, tornado, anxiety. So one other question here. Um, sure. I 
I had uh, someone ask about a way that they could uh, support or pray for their spouse when they're struggling through this. Sure. Um, and then also, um, maybe a parent who uh, has, has kids. I, sure. We, we found this Lord, even with our kids. Sure. This is a great question because I've lived this. I had a spouse when I was going through, well, I still have her, nine years. <laughs> still have her. Um, practically, if you're the spouse or the parent, you need to stay calm. If the person has, if your, your, your child or your, your spouse has anxiety, it's important for you to stay calm. It's also super important for you to stay patient the person is already anxious, they're on edge. If you become anxious and on edge, you're going to feed off of each other. And that's just going to increase problems. Uh, staying patient and trying to increase your understanding is very important too so the person doesn't feel judged, they feel supported. If you're critical, judging of the situation, the person is unlikely to get better. It's going to exacerbate the situation. Um, it's also important if the person is very anxious for you as a spouse or a parent to help them slow down. Really practically, this is helping them breathe slowly. We call this diaphragmatic breathing. In through the nose, real deep out through the mouth. That slows down all of your physiology. It lowers the heart rate, your blood pressure. It increases more oxygen uh, into the body, which lowers that anxiety response. And I think probably the most important thing is to pray for your spouse or for your child or for your loved one. What helped me is that my wife and I, Elizabeth, we focused on a particular verse. And that was Philippians 4.13 for me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For me, I felt vulnerable, weak, scared. And so that verse gave me empowerment. It helped me get through it. You know, So if you can come up with a verse, learn it together, sort of use that as you're having that anxiety, it can kind of fo focus and shift your mindset back to the truth of God instead of onto those emotional, anxious feelings.